All right, it's four o'clock. Uh, let, uh, if you haven't already, the outline's over there in the corner. You want to grab that? Uh, and let me pray as we get started. Lord, thank you for a chance for us to think through these um, strategies together as we have been doing, as we think about not only our own souls, but how to minister to others. Give us wisdom. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, uh, we are in the session where we're going to think through 10 redemptive strategies as pastors and counselors to just improve your counseling. And uh, I, I, you, if you're in general session, you know I'm Deepak Reggie, I'm associate pastor in, uh, at a church in downtown D.C. Uh, I teach a lot of counseling, and so what I listed there for you are just the, the five ways in which you communicate counseling, you think through counseling with other people, if you ever have an opportunity to help others think through it. First one is theory, you know, it's the content and philosophy of counseling. There's a lot of different views in American evangelicalism on how to think through and do counseling. Two is process. This is not taught that much. How do you start from beginning to end, from the first session when they walk in, walk in your room to the last session where you say, hey, I think we're done. <laughs> um, what, what does that look like um, in regards to other people, helping people? Methodology, how you do counseling. What are the skills and strategies that you employ when you're interacting with the person and their problem? And that's, that's a, this is obviously the one we're going to be spending our time in. I'm going to be spending our time thinking through the doing part of counseling, the skills employed, the strategies that, you, that are involved in interacting with different kinds of problems. Case studies, which is really in some ways my favorite, because the case study is like, let's take everything we learned and put it in a real situation, and all the nuances that come when you interact with a real situation begin to emerge, because you just can't walk away with just 10 principles when you're interacting with real life. And then uh, experiential, watching live counseling. So some of the things I'll do when I'm... um, doing conferences is I'll do a live session in front of the whole audience with someone who's volunteered. Um, it's, a, it's an awkward thing to do for that person because uh, we're trying to talk about real problems and it's a real situation. It's not uh, role play. But there's just things you learn by when you watch it. So uh, if, if you ever get a chance to sit in on someone who's more experienced as a pastor or a counselor... You just learn a ton. You just keep your mouth shut and sit in the corner of the room. You learn a lot. So I, I came on staff uh, with, a, with a, uh, two other associate pastors who were there and a senior pastor. And the associate pastor, the most senior of the associate pastors, the one who had been there longest, was very gifted in counseling. And we co-counseled on a lot of situations together. I had templates from those two years of watching him that I still walk around with by just being in the room with him. Things I carry with me um, because of the, the chance to watch him apply to real situations. I think that's invaluable. You think, I'm a pastor all by myself with nobody else around me. Well, then call up a pastor you trust and ask him to sit in. You're just going to learn a ton uh, by, by doing it that way. We're on number th- the, the third one, methodology, and we're thinking about strategies. What's a strategy? It's a way to interact with the problem. It's a deliberate method that the pastor or counselor employs to help someone deal with sin, suffering, or any kind of personal struggle. Now, depending on the person or situation, the pastor or counselor can employ a host of redemptive strategies when suggesting how to deal with sin or suffering. My goal is to help someone see how to respond in faith and what that might look like, no matter what the situation is. That, that, that's, that's my goal, because if they're a Christian, and who I'm helping my members, so they're all born-again believers. I need them to understand what faith looks like in the specifics of their life. That's what we're, that's what we're shooting for as we come alongside of them. So the, these 10 strategies, then, are not distinct steps. They're, they're not five easy ways to deal with any problem. You just need to throw that template, that kind of thinking out of your mind. Uh, because you never know walks in the, what walks in the door. 
You just do not know what the situation is. And so though we teach principles, because we need to have some kind of principles to guide us, and, and we try and draw things right out of Scripture, you cannot be formulaic as you do this. Um, my, my, uh, one of the friends who had mentored me for a number of years while I was in seminary, um, and 21 years ago, and his wife, uh, he and his wife did our premarital counseling for my wife and I, uh, Robert Chong, um, his book Restore just came out this past month. And um, Robert would often say to me, uh, counseling is basically like light jazz. <laughs> it's a lot of improv- improv- improvisation in, in the moment. You're just trying to figure out how to improvise, adjust, change, respond, think, pray, you know, apply. You're, just, you're trying to figure out what to do in every situation. That's part of the fun of it. I never know what's going to show up. <laughs> I really don't know what's about to walk in the door. But that's also the hard part about it. There's no simple formula. <laughs> there, there's no five easy steps. <laughs> if there were, I would have sold a bestseller by it now. <laughs> but I have not. <laughs> so, ten strategies. Here we go. Uh, one to ten, thinking through them. Number one, reintroduce God. Because of how rampant biblical illiteracy is in our day, it's not surprising that many Christians have a superficial understanding of the character of God. Uh, Yet, knowing God as He reveals Himself is the greatest source of confidence for human life. Getting to know the character of God is going to be helpful no matter what the problem is. (laughs) The most important thoughts you have are the thoughts you have about God. The most important thoughts you have are the thoughts you have about God. A faulty understanding of God is going to affect how we respond to life. So I've labeled this trickle-down theology. You know, my doctrine of God, who I understand God to be, what, what He's done as we understand redemptive history, how that trickles down into the nooks and crannies of my life is just going to change everything. Which is why understanding who God is matters for everything else. <laughs> so, you know, what is theology? Ology, study of theo, theos, God. Study of God. <laughs> what I believe about God, my theology, affects how I live. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like the la- rain coming down, it trickles into all the aspects and nooks and crannies of my life. It changes how I live. So theology matters. What you believe affects everything. So for example, if a person sees God as critical and scrutinizing, she'll respond in fearful resignation. Christianity to her becomes moral performance and life becomes graceless. Or if a person sees God as a genie or Santa Claus, he expects God to grant him happiness. And not surprisingly, he will be frustrated and disappointed when suffering comes. And be quite miffed off if you talk to him about categories of God being sovereign and everything being for his ultimate glory. (laughs) So there's a wide range of misconceptions about God. I want to give you six examples, things I I, I feel like I run into in in the counseling room all the time. Number one, I just mentioned it. You see there, God is genie and Santa Claus. God exists to give me whatever I want. (laughs) Because happiness and my happiness is the goal. Number two, God is tyrant. There is condemnation and judgment, but no grace. God commands me and he demands from me. Number three, Jesus as my best friend. God is all about grace and forgiveness. You can never do anything wrong. There's no condemnation or judgment, only love. Number four, distant relative. A relationship with God is like a relationship you have with a distant cousin who you see at that family gathering once a year. You know, you picture it, you go to the family wedding, that cousin who you rarely ever talk to, you make nice, polite, small talk because you're supposed to, it's your cousin, and yet there's not much depth to the relationship. You are biologically related, but that's basically it. (laughs) You don't really know them much at all. Well, that's how you feel about God. (laughs) Well, I've got a personal relationship with him, but there's just not much there. It feels distant at best. 
Number five, unstable, unpredictable boss. God is the authority figure who's fickle, uncertain, unpredictable in all of his decisions. And number six, the puppet master, the fatalistic view of God. What happens is inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it. This leads to a passive approach to life. If I can't change anything, then why bother trying? Perhaps it's best to summarize this point by saying that misconceptions of God are always tied to a person's deepest desires and core expectations of life. True knowledge of God brings order to these desires and expectations. They rearrange us from the inside out and change how we view everything. The best way to introduce someone to God is to tell them about Jesus. What does John 14 tell us? Those who know the Son will also know the Father. In telling them the gospel, we introduce them to a God who sent His Son to rescue sinners from their selfish desires and expectations. Who wouldn't want a God like that? You know, forget about the genie, forget about the tyrant, forget about Jesus as my best friend, forget about the distant relative, forget about the unstable, unpredictable boss, forget about the puppet master. God is not passive. He grabs whole hearts. He turns people's lives inside out. He transforms people's lives. That, that's, that's the good news we know. Jesus came so we don't have to live the same anymore. He would change the nature of our entire life. Strategy number two, de-psychologize. Your counselees and fellow church members listen to Oprah or Dr. Phil or other popular psychology all the time. <laughs> you know, they read it in magazines, on the news, on inter- internet. They absorb psychological ways of thinking because that is what our culture breathes out. They breathe it in all the time, whether they realize it or not. Sometimes people are so willingly embracing the culture's norms that a large part of work is to dissuade them of the priorities and values that are just simply not biblical. Many of these folks will be self-professing Christians, yet largely view life from a framework of worldly standards, whether explicit like you know, over-identifying with psychological labels like PTSD or bipolar or depression, or more implicit, like when they presume lasting happiness is not only both possible, but it is to be expected. Helping them to see themselves as a child of God primarily, rather than bipolar or schizophrenic, or to accept suffering as normal for Christians rather than running from it, is going to be require patient reworking of sometimes some very subtle assumptions. Let me give an example. Many years ago, I helped a young man who said in response to, the, to dealing with his problems, he would often, as I pushed him and challenged him to think through how to respond to things, he would say to me, but I can't because I'm OCD. And I would get sick of the response because <laughs> no matter what angle I worked... <laughs> No matter what way I pushed him, no matter how we prayed about it, he just wouldn't take on a greater sense of responsibility. His answer was, but I can't because I'm OCD. And it drove me nuts. Because <laughs> what did the label do? The label gave him less of a sense of responsibility for his problems. That's what I mean by over-identifying. I'm not saying that the label into itself is bad, I think there are ways to interact with those categories that can be useful. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful in my language and saying an over-identification with categories like that that become your primary identity and then becoming a Christian or being a child of God it becomes your secondary identity. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> that is a problem because we're Christians. <laughs> Christ is supposed to be first in our life. So I needed to de-psychologize the way he thought about himself. His identity in Christ needed to be primary, not the psychological label. And as an image bearer and a child of God, 
he had the ability to respond to his problems and not just passively receive them. The most true thing about a Christian is being a treasured possession of Christ, whatever may be going on physiologically. Until a person operates out of, his, out of this priority, they'll be hindered in responding in faith to their troubles. Number three, deprogram performance. So a legalistic performance mentality can be described in two ways. I'm going to call it little L and big L. So first, little L and big L. So L obviously stands for uh, legalism. So little L. Uh, my identity revolves around the idea that I feel better about myself when I'm able to do something. Now, I, I said to you all earlier, I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm surrounded by type A people. <laughs> people who show up in the city because they're there to conquer the world. <laughs> So, type A people are classic workaholics where they're focused on doing rather than being. As pastors and counselors, we teach people not to simply check things off their to-do list, but to rest in Christ's finished work. To understand what it means to live in what God has done for you, rather than constantly feel like I have to do for Him. It, 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 it's, it's important to understand what that looks like if you've spent your lifetime doing for God, rather ever learning how to rest and be, it's incredibly hard to learn how to do it. So that's little L, big L. Now, big L is a Galatian-style legalism. Faith plus works equals salvation. So in regards to my salvation, my mentality is I must do something in order to earn God's favor. My salvation is not by grace through faith, not in Christ alone, but by works so that I can boast in myself. If someone is stuck in a performance trap, either this little L or this big L, that is, they must do something in order to earn God's favor, then they need to grow in their understanding of free grace, Ephesians chapter 2, Take comfort in their identity in Christ, Galatians chapter 3, 26 to chapter 4, 7. And learn to rest in God's love, Romans 8, 31 to 38. Grace and love are the biggest antidotes to a performance mentality. A lifetime of legalistic performance mentality will not change overnight. They've cultivated it, the habits and the thinking for years. It'll take time. Now, some members will come to you so entrenched in certain ways of thinking and living, it'll feel like you're deprogramming someone who you just sprung from a cult. <laughs> it's, the mentality is so strong, it's just hard to get them out of it. Others will hide behind a legalistic view of God to prevent them from seeing truly profound ways they fall short because it's just too painful to acknowledge. In either case, Christians who are deeply entrenched in unbiblical ways of thinking must be patiently challenged with the dual truths that humans are far more shameful than they could ever bear to acknowledge, and yet made far more holy than we could ever dare to hope. How to interact with a counselee can reinforce the performance trap or deprogram it. So I, for years, would ask people about their devotional time, and, you know, in a legalistic, check-off-the-box kind of way, type A, DC people will say, you know, oh, I did my quiet every day this week. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't want to know the numbers. <laughs> I, I don't want to know the numbers. What I want to know is, are you being nursed by the Word? Are you growing greater love for your Savior? Do you cherish God? Are you worshiping above everything else? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so I, I have to even be careful in how I ask questions because I can reinforce a more performance mentality in my spiritual life. Oh, I'm going to rattle off for you all the good things I've done for God or how the ways I've been faithful to my spiritual disciplines. And that's somehow a measure of the, my quality of my relationship with the Lord. Well, true, there could be good fruit from all that. But that's not the be-all and end-all measure of who you are in regards to God. Number four, contrast functional 
versus confessional assumptions. I'm going to flip the page to page two. Uh, what we say we believe and how we actually function are often quite at odds with one another. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, a grown woman uh, was beaten by her father when she was a child. So when she came to see me and we started working through things, it was really hard for her to trust men. You just wouldn't be surprised. The one man, the one man in her life that should have defended and protected her ruined her life. And so her functional theology was that men could not be trusted. She carried that from her childhood well into her adulthood. And she walked around with that belief because of what she had been through. It was really hard for her to comprehend and understand that Scripture says there is such thing as redeemed men. Another example, an adult child of drug addicts who essentially was abandoned by his parents walked around convinced that he had to fend for himself in this world. No, no one had his back, and so he had to take care of himself. Well, you're not surprised if you know his story that that was his functional theology as an adult walking around. Ultimately, nobody's going to cover this for me. Nobody's going to take care of me. I mean, it's already proven by the way my life has been. He, he, even though we talked about the theological power of Christian fellowship, he just didn't buy into it. Now, both these believers struggle with functional assumptions, which are the guiding principles for their life. You know, the woman believes men cannot be trusted. The adult child of drug addicts believes that no one has his back. Think for yourself. What are your functional assumptions? You know, we all have them. Sometimes they're more explicit. Sometimes they're more subtle. And yet we all have them. We all have a functional theology we're operating off of that needs to be rearranged by God's Word. Now, contrast functional assumptions with confessional assumptions. What's a confessional assumption? What we know to be true according to the Bible. Pastors and counselors need to root out the guilt, the shame, and the lies that define the functional assumptions and plead with and teach and persuade a person of the amazing value of a life oriented to God's perspective. We can undermine bad functional assumptions by teaching and modeling true confessional assumptions. Teaching and modeling, both teaching and modeling. Notice I'm emphasizing both, not just one or the other. Because I think combined together, they help us see Christ-likeness in a much more powerful way. We don't only proclaim truth, but we incarnate it by living it out in front of other people, by modeling what it actually looks like. In some situations, a person's sin and suffering has been so hard, truth feels hollow. So you can preach at them all day. But if they've experienced wretched evil in their life, it's just going to be really hard for them to come to terms with it. So they need to not only hear, but they need to also experience it. So let me give you the examples. Just go back to the example I just gave you. So the, the woman who I just talked about, teaching, you know, it took a lot of time sitting under the preaching of God's word, but she came to terms with the reality that there is such thing as redeemed men. But you know where it started? It came from the reality that there is a loving God. And if there is a loving God, he can, in his love, change men. There is such thing as men who genuinely love and redeem are redeemed. It, t- it took a lot of time for her sitting on the preaching, but over the course of time, God's word broke through to her heart and helped her to begin to consider that. But, you know, in reality, if you looked at her life, she kept a, she kept a good distance from any men. So at this point, it, it's, it's an abstract reality in her mind, but experientially, she had never come close to it. Well, that, that's not full change for me. I'm not going not to be satisfied with that. 
Because right now that means it's an ivory tower, but she she's not going to get any close. She's not going to get close in because of the evil she experienced. So what do I do? Uh, what do I conspire to do now? <laughs> if one of the ladies on my staff say, "Okay, here's the situation. Here's the lady who's been abused. Here's what we're working with. Here's what she's struggling with." Oh man, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask my wife. Can you invite so and so over for dinner? <laughs> why do I? Why do I want that? Because I want her in our home. What I want her to see is then when my young daughter, Noelle, as she typically does when we have guests over, crawls up into my lap and starts tickling me in front of the guests, and I start tickling her back and we're just laughing, and she sees me being gentle with her. Or when my younger son has a little bit of tantrum because we forgot his drink, and so my wife is going to sit up and go get it. I said, no, 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 I'm closer to the kitchen. My seat's always closer to the kitchen. I'll get it. And I jump up and serve my wife. Okay, what does that do? Boom! <laughs> you know, it takes us out of the ivory tower, and it takes us into real life. As her life now rubs up against the reality that there really are redeemed men. <laughs> That's what I mean. Incarnate it. Put her in gospel community. Help her to see it. And that's the one-two combination I'm looking for. Teaching and modeling. That, that, that combination, I don't, I don't know how else you do it. Because <laughs> you can preach at them all day, and God will change their hearts. But if they don't see it live in action, they're going to have a hard time owning it completely. And that's what brings them completely there, when you, when you have the combination of both those. Same thing, the child of a drug addict. You know, uh, as, as the child of a drug addict learns both the limits of and the redemption of human relationships in Christ. He'll learn the appropriately to trust others. And so he did. You know, he, he was in our community, and he heard the truth, and a lot of other people started interacting with him. But, you know, he still walked around with this kind of slight, slightly keeping people at a distance because he still believed, ultimately, he's got, he's got to cover himself. Nobody's got his back. And so as the elder involved in his life... I worked extra hard to be consistent when he needed a godly man in his life, when he needed a father figure, especially since he came from a very broken home. I just wanted to be the one older man that never turned his back, the one older man that would always be available, the one older man who would rearrange his schedule when he was having a hard time to get into his life, to feel like he's, he really does have a father figure who's going to endure with him over the course of time. And, you know, what does that do? He said, okay, it is possible. It, it, it starts breaking down that, that functional theology. It rearranges it. So teaching and modeling. Number five, reframe. So why are collectors of fine art quite selective with their frames? You know, if I went out and bought a, a pretty beautiful painting, but then I went over to Target and bought a 10 cheap dollar frame... And you walked into my home and you noticed, well, it's beautiful, but the frame looks, you know, wickedly ugly. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I don't really get this combination. Well, a beautiful painting becomes questionable in a hideous frame. Well, so also life, in life, distress or fear can frame the way a person relates to life and to you. Conveying an overall picture of a situation that's quite unbearable. So as pastors and counselors, we can help people reframe the raw data of their lives with a distinctly biblical frame. A pastor or a counselor helps the struggling person consider how God would frame this situation, helping him or her to see the picture of his or her life more clearly. So a depressed man comes to me who thinks that his marital problems are hopeless but, you know, from, from a pastor's perspective, especially if you've been in the trench more than a decade, you've seen a lot of pr- marital problems come in your door. And whereas some of them didn't go well, some of them actually are still not going great, but you've been in a front row seat to see a lot of things change. <laughs> you, you've seen a lot of, of God's grace work through the lives of husbands and wives. So when he turns to you with his problems 
and says, I'm hopeless, you're able to reframe that with truth to be able to say, okay, no, let's see what God has to say about this. We're not going to let fear define your life. or We're not going to let sadness define your life. But you can also testify to the fact as a pastor, like, no, I have seen God rework these situations. I have seen what God has done. So I'm going to put a frame around this, and you've got to trust me that if we stick with this, God can do something about it. When he looks at me and says, have you ever seen a marriage this bad? More often than not, I said, yeah, I've seen bad marriages, and I've seen worse. <laughs> He's fearful that no one else has been through the same kind of trial and survived. But as his pastor who's seen a lot of couples in similar distress and sees the possibilities of what a man and woman can pursue, a husband and wife can have in a redemptive path, you can offer hope by reframing the situation, both by truth and your experience. offers a lot to them. The man's frame is fear and doom. The pastor reframes with hope to redeem the marriage. The pastor's interpretation of the facts plus a new frame on the data can provide hope that didn't surround the picture before. For your people's sake, don't accept their starting points or their conclusions. Help them to consider other frames, other angles, other lighting that better draws attention to redemptive hope in their situation. A reframing word is remarkably clarifying at times. It's the essence of encouragement. You know what encouragement means? It means literally to lend courage to a situation. Well, that's what we're trying to do. Paul did this with the Thessalonians in helping them to frame their lives according to the glorious future that awaited them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Strategy number six, uncover underlying dynamics. In every situation, there's unspoken dynamics that define what's going on. For example, a wife can have expectations for how much money should be spent on the family budget or how the husband should serve her. She might have fears that he may abandon her just like her father did when her father abandoned her mother. Or she might have a sense of entitlement like her husband owes her a big house, a nice car, beautiful clothes if, she claim, if he claims to truly love her. And she might wrestle with idols that rule her heart like perfectly behaved children or out-of-this-world sex life with her husband. Expectations, fears, anger, entitlement, apathy, idolatries, these are underlying dynamics that define and rule any situation. And unless the pastor or counselor draws them out and makes them explicit, it's hard to deal with much of anything in a person's life or situation. You know, I've dealt with uh, a number of uh, entitled husbands or wives in my years who felt like they deserved things in their marriage. And, you know, I had one situation where a wife had been nagging and nagging and nagging and nagging at her husband for things that she felt like she deserved in her marriage. And then, you know, one day in counseling, as she was getting frustrated with it, she said, I deserve to be treated like a princess! And her husband looked at me, and I looked at him, and I thought, I can't believe she just said that. <laughs> I, I, uh, well, we got it out there. At least now we can deal with it. <laughs> okay, well, you know, that's the sense of entitlement. <laughs> well, we, 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 we had to get it out there. So now we can talk about it. Now we can help one another. Now we can work through it together as we work through these kinds of situations. That's the underlying dynamic that's made explicit. Well, the love of the world has many different forms it takes, some of them brazen and obvious, others understated and subtle. But a person's helped when she's alerted to what she's not sensible to when she's directed to Christ as the true object of her worship. Number seven, show consequences. Every decision in life, whether large or small, has consequences. The biblical principle of sowing and reaping now comes into play. The type of seed you plant is the type of crop you carry home. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. In counseling, 
On the front end of decisions, we help people to explore the different alternatives a person might be facing as they're facing some kind of decision in their life. And we try and trace out the logical consequences to certain kinds of decisions or certain kinds of lifestyles. Based on experience, you as a pastor or a counselor will be able to give likely scenarios that will play out in a certain situation. That's where your experience helps. You know, people think you are a really smart pastor. (laughs) How did you know? (laughs) How did you know that's what's going to happen? Because, you know, you have the conversation. They say, I'm going to do A and B. And and you say, well, if you do A and B, C is going to happen. And they're like, no, not at all. I'm going to be fine. What happens? They do A and B and C happens. And you think, man, if I had a a dollar for every time this happened, I'd be a millionaire by now. (laughs) But goodness sakes, you, 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 you are not there to just say, I told you so. You know, the thing that Pastor wish he could say, but he can't say in person. <laughs> but the reality is, you've seen that same kind of problem 20 or 30 times. So it's not hard to predict anymore, because you've seen the consequences so often. And so it behooves you to speak up, and to tell them, and to warn them about the consequences. You know, the pastor will find himself in situations where it's incumbent upon him to speak prophetically, not in a strict, direct word from the Lord sense, but rather in a sense of laying out clear and sober warning for the consequences. What you don't want is someone saying after the fact, if I'd only known. You know what they're going to face, so you speak up about potentially hard things to head off bad decisions. Such warnings should be accompanied by pleasant descriptions of positive outcomes that come when you submit your life to God. So you don't just warn, don't do this. You say, look at how beautiful it is when you obey. See see the glory and the beauty in it when you actually do what God's Word says. Because that has clear consequences too in bearing really beautiful fruit for our life. Basically, you're challenging people to have a vision for where their actions and attitudes and desires will take them, either for good or for ill. Number eight, strategy number eight, confront and reorient. It is quite common for pastors or counselors to have hard conversations with hardened and foolish people. Confrontation is a normal part of life. A pastor or counselor were given a solemn charge to proclaim the word to those who come into our life. A crucial part of love is being willing to say the hard thing. If you really love God's flock, you'll warn and exhort them when they're straying and making bad choices. Pastors or counselors are truth tellers. We're often good at using the truth in confronting sin. I'm going to call this banging on the front door. And you'll understand in just a minute why I'm using that word picture. So, for example, consider a wife who's committed adultery. Sometimes you you deal with an adulterer, and I've had this a couple of different times as I've helped out cases of adultery, where the adulterer has not decided what they're going to do. They're wavering. They haven't decided if they're going to go back to their spouse, if they're going to run away with their lover. And so there's a clear confrontation there that's needed. There's no, there's no messing around with this. It's like, if you run away with the, your lover, you're turning your back on God. Don't, don't tell me you think God can forgive you for this, because that's cheap forgiveness. That is not the forgiveness we understand from the cross. That is not what Christ's blood was shed for. So if you run away with your lover, you're turning your back on God. I need to say direct and hard things in that situation because they have to face truth. Or, you know, we've got a young congregation. We, we have, we have, we, young, young people get involved in a lot of sexual sin. <laughs> and so I'll oftentimes have a person who's going off the rails with sexual sin. 
And I have to say to them, repent and turn around. Stop messing around. You cannot do this anymore. And I'm going to be loving and kind, give them a hug, but I'm going to be direct with this. Because their life is hanging on the edge of a cliff. So, we've got to be truth tellers. As a pastor and counselor, if you do not confront when someone should be confronted, that is not loving. It's being fearful. And God is the one who seeks out wanderers, even when they don't know they're wandering. Just as God seeks them out, so also should we do the same. Knowing how to confront in a specific situation is not always easy, but it should always be clearly biblical about what is being confronted why it's displeasing to God, and how it shows up in a person's life. Confrontation should always be delivered with redemptive intention and personal commitment. Many times, the warning will go unheeded, and a person will step over the cliff, abandon his faith, and fall into blatant sin. This is not necessarily a commentary on the quality of the confrontation but on the Lord's means of handling the person at that time. The hope is always that someone who strays will return to his gospel senses. Number nine, counseling in the moment. You know, uh, this, is, this was a, a early and norm, fairly normal rookie res- mistake for me, as I'd call it, where, you know, I come in with an agenda, things I'm ready to teach, things I want to engage them with, and unexpectedly... S- Say someone starts crying. What do, I, what do I do as a rookie pastor? I'll just keep powering through with my agenda. <laughs> I'm here on behalf of God. I study the text. I'm ready for this lesson. This is the truth that you need to hear. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't planning for them to cry. <laughs> I wasn't expecting the tears to burst out there. What do I need to do? I need to be prepared for the moments that I didn't expect. Prepared for the things that God would bring into the room that I wasn't planning for. And so, you know, in my immaturity, I ram over, like run straight through those situations, run over that person with my agenda. I was wretched. Now, what do I do? Okay, well, throw that out. (laughs) And just simply pause and ask, Why are you crying? Tell me about your tears. Because you're probably going to get more in that conversation if you're willing to be patient and listen to why they're crying than what you ever planned for. If you're humble enough to give up your agenda and be prepared for what God might do that you weren't even expecting. I mean, one of my co-counselors is very gifted at asking questions that like pierces right down to the bone. I've watched her do this a number of times, where the last time we did this, we were in marital counseling, she asked a question, and the husband just kind of exploded in tears. Like, she just pierced through all of his walls and cut right through to his heart. And I'm sitting there, and it's not those situations. I'm looking at the wife, and she's looking at me, and we go, what just happened here? Well, that's a golden opportunity. We just tapped into some deep wells, that he hadn't been giving us access to before. So we want to take advantage of that moment and be prepared for what God might do in those unforeseen opportunities. Number 10, approaching the side door rather than a frontal confrontation, a frontal assault. So pastors and counselors are good at truth-telling. We just talked about that. So we often barge in through the front door. We're really good at confronting someone with God's word. This is what truth says. Here, take it. Take that. (laughs) Pastors and counselors, we need to be thoughtful about when we choose to confront. Confrontation, what I'm calling front door strategies at times, won't work because what it'll do, it'll provoke defensiveness. The person's all geared up, like, oh, okay, you're going after me. Well, I'm prepared for this. (laughs) Come on, bring it on. Well, that's not going to go too well, is it? <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you get them defensive, well, it's just going to be even harder to have the conversation. 
Front door strategies don't work because in conflict, a typical way to argue with someone or blame them or condemn them just boxes them into a corner. <laughs> Blaming and condemning causes a person to put up walls and it makes the conversation much, much, much harder. So consider that you might get at the same problem by going through the side door. Imagine a conversation with a single Christian woman who starts dating a non-Christian. I could come in and say, you're wrong. <laughs> you know what scripture says about this? You've been in our church for a while. What on earth are you doing? What's I got to do? Rah! <laughs> Stay back. <laughs> that's not going to work at all. Well, what about the side door? What if I came in and I said, you know, I love you. I'm committed to you. Please just talk to me. Rather than rudely stuffing truth down her throat, I enter the side door by, one, reaffirming my love for her as her pastor, and two, just simply asking a question. Just talk to me. Tell me what you're going through. So it's grounded in truth. God loves you, but also I love you as your pastor. So let's work through this together. Keep in mind, the Bible speaks of tone. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And here you go, bonus number 11. <laughs> you thought you were just here for 10. <laughs> Make short-term and long-term goals. Uh, when a person's lost and in the fog of difficulty, unable to see uh, uh, even just a step ahead, sometimes the best thing to do for him or her is to suggest some short-term, but then some also long-term goals. While change is mysterious and often in incremental, this doesn't mean that counseling process needs to be nebulous. Uh, we're called to specific action in living out our faith. Simple, practical-oriented goals that addresses a problem can be remarkably helpful for getting a person out of a fog. Setting goals will take some prep work on behalf of you as a pastor or counselor, since often people in the midst of trouble can't figure out goals for themselves. Just keep one thing in mind in setting the goals, though. Goals can only involve what a counselee can be personally responsible for. So you should set the goals for something they can actually handle and get accomplished and accomplish. You should not set goals on things that are dependent on other factors. So, for example, if I said to a husband, a crummy husband, I hope I, I need you to have a better marriage this week. Well, that's not a great goal <laughs> unless he knows what to do about it. Or if I say to a depressed person, you need to feel more hopeful this week. Well, I mean, that's, that's not going to work all that well. Well, go back to the husband. What if I told him to confess his sin to his wife and ask for forgiveness for the way he started the argument yesterday? Okay, well, that's more concrete. What if I said to the depressed person, over the next two weeks, our goal is for you to be, take, have more Bible intake, to find one way to serve others, and to get some exercise into your life? Okay, that's much more specific and doable for them. Now, you got to be careful because in some situations, the long-term goal is going to be overwhelming. And so all you can offer at a certain point is a short-term goal. So this often happens for me in working with depressed members who have chronic depressions. Uh, I, I, uh, my, my exercise, because we have five children, so there's a lot happening in our home. I want to be there and be engaged until all the kids are down. And so by 9 o'clock, our younger kids are down and my older kids are Older teenagers are doing homework, so I go for a bike ride between 9 and 10 o'clock in the evenings, and it's a beautiful ride. It's, it's, we have five blocks from the Capitol, so I go past the Capitol, uh, past the Washington Monument, past the Reflecting Pool, the Lincoln, and circle back uh, each night. So that's my, that's my nightly ride. It's, it's a beautiful scene in the evening. But the, 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 the wicked thing about that ride, <laughs> it's a six-mile ride, is that the hill of the Capitol is on the last part of the ride. <laughs> I was like, you know, I've done five and a half miles and I hit the high hill. 
on the last half mile. Uh, and, you know, this is one of, the, one of the many reasons why my wife is such a gift to me. When I first started doing that, and I, I just psychologically, I couldn't make it up the hill. I would psychologically give up because I was so exhausted at that point, and I was just getting into bike riding. Um, and she said to me, you know, what gear are you in? What do you mean, what gear? <laughs> Did you shift all the way down? Uh, no. <laughs> well, why don't you shift down and see what happens next time? Oh, remarkable. <laughs> A simple change. But the other thing I did is I stopped looking at the top of the hill because it was discouraging. <laughs> it was just discouraging to see how far I had to go. So I would look down just directly in front of me so I could just see the next spot I'm going to and make sure I don't crash into a car that's parked along the Capitol side. And you know what? Those two things shifted it. And so now for about five years, I've made it up the hill every time. (laughs) So the same thing with a depressed person. I tell them, forget about the long-term goals for right now. What I need you to do is just look at the very next thing. Talk with your spouse, your best friend, your roommate, and you just need to lay out what the goal is for tomorrow. And that's it. That, that is all you can do, because that's like looking at just right in front of me. They can't look it to the top of the hill. It's too overwhelming for them. And I, I don't always have a sense of this, and I just realized this after a number of times of working with chronically depressed members. It's just too much for them. So I need to help them just see the very next step. And you might look at that next step and think, that's not much of anything. To them, it's a lot. So you've got to help them see the next step. And, well, what do, what do you do? Because you don't see them for another week. Well, their spouse then the next day decides what the next step is. And if they don't accomplish it that next day, then the next step. They do that same next step again until they get it. And that's how we, that's how we roll. <laughs> that's how we do it until they're slowly building out of those short-term goals towards bigger things. So, you know, there's a balance there. You just don't throw long-term goals at anyone. You got to think both short term and long term and what they can handle overall. So that's the main things I want to communicate to you. Uh, let me pause here because we got a couple of minutes for any questions about the 10 strategies plus the bonus one at the end uh, for you or anything else I've said. Yes, and tell me your name. Jerry DeSantis. Hi, Jerry. Yeah. A little bit of a session that you talked about this beginning. About how many sessions do you go out? You just go one at a time, or do you say a period of time to get so far, and then you evaluate to see whether yeah. whether they're willing to take the next step? Yeah. I generally speaking, I mean, a big difference between I mean, our congregation half single, a lot of twenty year olds. Uh, somebody comes in, he wants to just have a conversation about dating. It's not a long term thing, usually one-off conversation, and then they don't need to really talk with me for probably weeks. Uh, that's not, not, not a serious issue. But someone comes in with suicidal ideation, oh man, I need to see them every week. <laughs> I mean, I need to have conversations and I need to develop even a team to be working around this person if they don't have a good support uh, around them. And so, yeah, I will, I, will, I will now, based on the problem that walks in, have a clear sense of what I need to, I, what I need to do. You have an initial conversation to determine that. I, I, I will. Yeah, I mean, I will in terms of if, if it's like, hey, the suicidal situation walks in. I don't. I'm not going to say to them, "Ooh, your problem is really bad. <laughs> I need to see you a lot." <laughs> That's not what we're saying to them. You know, the same thing. The things the pastors always think they can't say, <laughs> person. Uh, but I am thinking that I'm thinking, man, this is going to be a rough ride. So I need to be around you a good bit. Where I joke with some people, I don't, I don't tell them your problem's bad, so you need to see me a lot. I say, I'm about to become your best friend. <laughs> I'm sorry, the counseling pastor is now going to become your best friend, but we need to work together. I mean, that's what I'm here for, to help you through this. And then people come in at that point, they're really welcoming of it and working through it. But I will say, like, you know, at three months, if it's a long, six months, a long-term issue, we will reevaluate. 
Um, and then I also schedule out. If I know I got to see someone, I hate tracking people down. I really do. I think it's like, it's a waste of my time to be texting, calling, emailing you, knowing you need another appointment, and yet you're evading me. I mean, uh, you're, people are tithing for, from, to pay my salary. I don't need to do all that. So the simple thing is like, if, if I know I need to see them, I'm going to go ahead and schedule out three months right there. I gotta see you every week. Pull out my calendar. Let's let's lock it in right now because I got you in front of me. And as I'm typing it in, I'm putting a calendar invite with their email, so they're getting it directly too. So there's there's no confusion about what we're doing. And then that morning of when I see people in the afternoon, I email them all, <laughs> saying I'm seeing you at one, seeing you at two, seeing you at three, just as a reminder. So it's clear what, who I'm seeing, what hour, and that they know also I'm expecting them. Are you doing all this without charging people? Oh, yeah, because I'm, 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 I'm salaried by the church, okay. and I only see my church members. Okay. So there's, there's, no, there's no fee involved. Okay. They just need to tithe on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> that's what pays, that's what allows me to do the work. Other questions, yes. You Tell me your name again. Peter. Peter. Yeah, that's a great question, Peter. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I, I, need to, I need to, as much as I can, plan, pray, prepare, uh, as much as time allows. You know, sometimes you have a rough week. You just got to walk in and deal with it. <laughs> you just honestly don't have much breathing room to do that. Sometimes it's like, oh, no, I want to go through the notes and think through some of the things that we've been working through the last month, and it'll help me think through how to help you in the next conversation. That's my ideal. I'd love to do that have a text possibly in mind for the situation based on the conversations we've been having, have a, have a, you know, a, have a homework assignment, have a book, have an article, uh, a booklet uh, to, to, to use, to give off. As a, I just want to, as much as I can be prepared. But, you know, sometimes it's like I don't have time to prepare, prepare and they're scheduled, and we're just going to get to it. <laughs> uh, I, I need to just deal with it. But then, uh, uh, as I described with the the in-the-moment counseling, I just need to be humble enough to be prepared for anything and everything to happen and be willing to drop my agenda. And, you know, there's more kind of redemptive gold that shows up if I'm, if I'm willing to be humble than if in my pride and arrogance I power through with that. So that's, that's more an issue than in my character in, in, in being willing to deal with the moment. Good. Yes. Name. Hi, uh, James. Uh, how often does physical exercise come into play when you give homework and short-term goal setting? Are you finding that's a big tool that you use in the counseling? Yeah. Well, I do. I, especially for depression. I mean, when I talk to people about depression, I have a whole two-page uh, kind of carts, uh, charts and spectrums where I, I talk through things, and one of them deals with light, exercise, eating habits, sleep. I just lay it out for a depressed person. I, I talk to them about foundations. Like, if you're not sleeping well, eating well, exercising, then you're going to make the depression worse. You make our work harder. Um, so I go through that with every severely depressed person who comes in. Do I go through that with every person? No, I got a lot of type A people who are exercising without me ever having to tell them. <laughs> so... You know, I'm in, I'm in the best city to give homework assignments. <laughs> you, just, you just got lawyers, professional consultants, all who have great follow-through with, with, that, with that regard. Yeah, so I don't, I don't have to do th- that much, and plus we're a younger congregation, uh, so they tend to be, like, very health-conscious uh, o- overall. But there are some people I need to... People who are probably in the most hardest situations are not conscious of the basic maintenance they need to do that's good for their life. Uh, so I do need to keep that in mind. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised at how much I've talked to about sleep and sleep patterns for stressed out people. <laughs> how something as simple as that, you just get enough sleep, how that begins to change the whole thing. It's five o'clock, so I need to let you all go. Uh, let me pray. And I'll be around. I'm here through the whole conference, so feel free to grab me uh, at any point, and I'm happy to keep talking and answering questions. Let's pray.
Lord, we, we do want to be used by you. There's no question in being called to, to serve you as under-shepherds, as counselors, as disciplers, that, that you, you will do a good work in the lives of your own children. And we have the privilege of having front-row seats. And so use us, help us to think about these kinds of strategies, how redemption can work out if we're wise and godly and thoughtful and careful and loving and honest and patient. So help us to do all those things in faith in Christ. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.